I can remember uh, this moment in my own life so well. It was several years ago. I was in Egypt, and I was there because of the work that my wife and I used to do in Washington, D.C., in the U.S. Congress. And it was because of that that the actual head of uh, the antiquities office, uh, the Egyptian antiquities, approved the opening of a tomb in the Valley of the Kings that had not been opened to the public yet. Now, in one sense, I knew that this was a big deal. It was an unopened tomb. But on another, in another sense, it wasn't as big a deal as it should have been. It was a really big deal to the young Egyptologist tour guide who was with us. When we walked down into that tomb that it had not been open to the public, there were Egyptian hieroglyphics. Obviously, those are ancient communicative symbols that honestly today are only understood by those who have specialized in learning that ancient form of communication. And when you would look at the, the wall, I was looking at them. I saw nothing. I just saw symbols. The young Egyptologist that was with me was honestly close to tears. He saw so much more on that wall. He realized for the first time what he was seeing before anyone else, the the preciousness of it, what was being communicated there. And he said something to me I will never forget. I was standing beside him and he said, if you could only see what I see right now. I was so blind to it. We were staring at the, the same wall and, and one of us saw nothing and the, and the other one saw glory that had him so moved that he was almost in tears. If you remove the the centuries of maybe sentimentality or cultural understanding, and you were to see Mary and Joseph on that night in a crowded city, you would have really only seen a poor family that had come from Nazareth to Bethlehem. The city was crowded. The baby would have appeared as ordinary as you could possibly imagine. Because ordinariness was the point. His glory was veiled. But what you would have seen with your eyes that night would not have been the whole story. Just as it was for me in that Egyptian tune, there was more than meets the eye. And this morning... We will think about the more that was there. We're going to do so from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. If you're new to using the Bible, that's in the New Testament. You can look at the table of contents. If you're using a phone, you can obviously pull that up on your phone. It's called Colossians. It's a letter to the church in Colossae many centuries ago. And what we're going to see is the glory that attended to the baby born in Bethlehem. Colossians 1, that's the chapter. It's the big number, 15 through 20, 15. Those are the verse, the small numbers of the verse numbers. Look at Colossians 1, 15 through 20. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here's the main point I want you to get this morning. Christ is the Lord of creation and redemption. Christ is the Lord of creation and redemption. And his fullness is enough for you. His fullness is enough for you. That's going to be our two points this morning. Lord of creation, Lord of redemption. Lord of creation, Lord of redemption. Let's begin by seeing Christ as the Lord of creation. There in verses 15 through 17. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter, and when he wrote the letter, this church in Colossae, which he had not met, was faced with this big question, is Christ enough? Or do we need other mediators between us and God? Maybe it was angels. A lot of people today think that we need other saints to mediate for us. In a world of gods, why Christ? And in this text, Paul is putting before us the unique supremacy of Christ, the place that Christ holds in the universe. And so with this hymn, we come to the red hot center of the greatest realities of the universe in which we live. Now, I would presume that every one of you looked at a mirror this morning. Don't have to raise your hand if you didn't. I doubt if any of you thought twice about whether what you saw in that mirror was an actual reflection of your image. You took for granted that what you were seeing is actually how you looked. There's an old catechism question, and it asks this question, what is God? And the answer is God is a spirit. He does not have a body like we do. So the God who is, is invisible. You cannot see him. How in the world are we to know what the unseen God is really like? Well, we can look in the scriptures. We can know him because he's disclosed himself there. But remarkably, the reality of Christmas and of Christ is that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Not an image, not something similar. Paul says, if you want to see God, look at Christ. It's in Christ that the invisible God is visible. Now, it's easy for us to think of God the Father as cold 
and removed, distant, abstract, and Jesus as the willing, loving son. But Jesus said to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the father. Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is the image of the father. Michael Reeves says this so well, there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. None. I wonder if you've, you've ever been frustrated in your own life because someone was assuming things about you and they didn't even know you. Without even knowing you, they, they presumed things about you simply by their impression of you. If you're going to know me and if I'm going to know you, then we have to disclose ourselves to each other. We have to let you in to our lives. Now, if that's true with human beings, how much more so with God? Shouldn't God get to tell us what he's like? And if that's the case, doesn't it stand to reason that even if the the whole world concludes wrong things about God, it doesn't really matter if they think that, if that's not actually what God is like. What is God like? Jesus. He's the image of the God we cannot see. The the invisible God has visibly disclosed himself in Jesus. So it will not do for us to reason that all claims of about God have some bit of truth in them if God has disclosed, if he's revealed himself in Jesus. I don't know, I can't presume to know all of your backgrounds this morning. Maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you're uninterested. Maybe you're opposed and you've just come this morning to be polite. Whatever, welcome. Merry Christmas. I want to challenge you this morning with whether you've actually considered the claims of Jesus, the authority of Jesus that he makes about himself, that the rest of the scriptures make about him. And then I want you to consider whether you've considered how good Jesus is, what he's done with his authority, and whether you can trust him in Jesus Authority and goodness meet in such a way that he gives life. He doesn't take it away. And what is his authority? He's the firstborn of all creation. In this season, it's natural that many think of the birth of of Jesus Christ, but, but his being the firstborn has absolutely nothing to do with his birth. It has everything to do with his rank. Firstborn here is a term that signifies supremacy. Here as as one who will rule with total sovereignty. So what Pastor Doug read to us earlier from Psalm 89, 27, we read of the Davidic king, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings on earth. Firstborn has nothing to do here with being born before someone else. It has everything to do with the one who is supreme above all else. As the eternal son, Christ is of greatest supremacy, highest rank over all creation. 
So who is Jesus? He has the highest rank over creation. But why? Is it just because delusional Christians need some kind of hope in a hard world? No. Look at 15. By him, all things were created. Heaven, earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. So Jesus is the highest rank because he's the agent. He's the means of creation. What we see, what we don't see. All here is sweeping. Paul could not say by him all things were created if he himself were a created being. In Colossae in particular, there was some teaching going around about the ranks of angels. We don't know if this necessarily referred to hostile angels or good angels, demons or angels. There was something that they were believing about the hierarchy of rank of angels that they were trusting in. Now, it was true then, and it, it's true now, that contrary to any naturalistic view of the world, unseen spiritual beings affect what we see on earth. And the church in Colossae was somehow wrongly revering or fearing these unseen spiritual beings. And what's Paul's point? What's he saying here about Jesus saying spiritual powers, whatever authority they have, it's under the authority of Jesus. Don't fear them. Don't look to them to provide for you what only Jesus can. They are part of the all things created by Jesus. And so because all things were created by Jesus, there is nothing in the entire universe over which Jesus does not have authority power. Every spiritual power is under the authority of Jesus. I wonder what you fear this morning. Whatever it is you fear is under the authority of Christ. Some of you fear the spiritual realm. You fear the demonic. But there is no authority over which Christ does not reign. And if you've trusted Christ, your Lord reigns over the visible and the invisible. Christ holds the place of highest authority, not what you fear. So what you fear, you see it rightly in comparison with Christ, you see how small your fears become. Christ is the agent, the means of creation, and Christ is the one for whom all things were created. Christ is the goal of creation. A few weeks ago when we had that Christmas service here, Pastor Doug mentioned that he, he followed, or I think he stalked, what he thought was a shake, all the way to Mina Al-Arab just to find out it was just the president of Costa Rica. Terrible. Dig. Made it an incredible country point was, wasn't it, that all those cars and all that protection was meant to give that president his due. I remember in my first years here when the Gold's Gym and Mina Al-Arab opened, uh, the original manager there put on a massive opening ceremony. It was complete with red carpet. There was a local Emirati band. There were literally fancy seats inside the gym. You can imagine the scene. And all of it was for the guest of honor, the Sheikh's brother, 
who came. Paul here goes up even higher. All creation for him. Now here's a massive reality. Why did God create the universe? For the honor and the praise of Jesus. The whole thing. There is nothing, there is no one who comes close to how highly we should think and exalt and honor and praise like Jesus Christ. Presidents and sheikhs ultimately are the rulers of one domain. Christ is over all domains. His praise and his honor are creation's goal. He is the agent, the goal of creation. And he's the sustainer of creation. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Before the created world existed, Christ was, Christ is. In him all things hold together. Or if we were to say it like Hebrews 1, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So this entire massive universe is from, through, for, upheld by a person. Why did God create the world? For the sun. Why does the universe exist right now? Because the sun is sustaining it. Why do you exist? Why are you in that seat right now? Because the sun is upholding you. What fear that should give any of us if we oppose the sun. What comfort that should give to any of us who love the sun. If he can uphold the universe, can he not uphold you? One of his blood-bought children, does he not have the power, does he not have the purpose to move everything in heaven and on earth for the sake of his people. I hope you see that despite the way this universe feels, it is absolutely not impersonal. It is personal. It was created by the personal God. It is sustained by the personal Christ. Does this not change in some sense the way you see the baby born. Don't be so hardened. Don't be so familiar with this story that you lose your astonishment that the baby in the manger was really, on the one hand, helpless, utterly dependent on his mother. And on the other hand, just in a very real way, the one in whom all creation depended in order to continue. Let God tell you what he is like, that he willed to veil his glory and to come into his own creation without fanfare, in an ordinary way. It's only with this knowledge of the unique, unique place of the sun and the universe that you will begin to see the baby born with as much astonishment and wonder as that young Egyptologist did that day in that tomb. And so from this, recognize whose this creation is. 
For you, Christian, this really is your Father's world. Created by the Son, through the Son, for the Son. And by faith, you are in union with the Son. In His universe, all things must work for your good. Christ even now sustains the universe because He is bringing for you plans, the heights of which you cannot begin to fathom. This should give you power to trust the Son in the lows and the valleys of your life. Think about what causes you to trust something else or someone else other than Christ. Why do you give that such weight and Christ so little weight? This would be a great week to meditate. Yes, fill your mind with what it means that Christ is the agent and the goal and the sustainer of creation such that you can't begin to look at the created world around you without it being centered and saturated in Christ. We must fill our minds with the glory of Christ that we see Christ's world rightly. So not only do Christians really believe that the one who who flung stars into space became man, we also believe that the universe serves his purposes, that he's taking the universe where he wants to take it. And this means for you as a Christian, your future is better than you can fathom. It's that time of year when we'll reflect on the past year and and maybe we'll look ahead to the next. Christ frees us to look ahead 10,000 years, a million years, You are united by faith to the one who is authoritatively leading his universe to his ends. If he sustains his universe, will he not sustain you and fulfill his purposes for you? If you're trusting Christ, you can look back on this past year and you can study the different circumstances and events of your life and you can see his personal care in the providences of your life, even when you didn't see them at that moment, may not continue to work in this way in your life, in the future. Christ is personally governing his universe, preparing it for the plans he has made beforehand for his people. Also, ponder these words for him. That helpless ordinary baby is the one to whom all creation will honor and bow the knee and give him the praise that is his due. And what that does for you is it simplifies your life. It expands your life. I've no doubt that some of you have had very hard years and you're in hard season even now. But the fact that all of creation is for Christ means you don't have to understand everything about your circumstances right now. You are freed to simply glorify Christ in them, in your next decision. Seek counsel from other Christians in this body. Ask the Lord to help you know how to glorify Christ. In each of your relationships, your aim is not to win approval. It is to glorify 
Christ. And that will mean different things. It might mean that you evangelize. It might mean you encourage. It might mean you get out of the relationship because it's a sinful one in the first place. But your aim is to glorify Christ. And somehow, when everything is said and done, your ordinary faithfulness will bring glory to Christ on the final day and into eternity. Do you see how praiseworthy Christ is? The one for whom all creation exists leaves the glories of heaven to come into his creation. How astonishing that one with this authority would lower himself to such obvious weakness. If you're not a Christian, it would be my prayer that you would genuinely be astonished by the love of God in Christ, by his grace in Christ, that he would willingly abandon rightful authority that is his and enter into ordinary human life. I pray that it would cause you to rethink some of your assumed thoughts of God or even your hardened ones. Content yourself to glorify Christ. What a life well lived. Christ is the Lord of creation. And secondly, Christ is the Lord of redemption. Verses 18 through 20. It's there in verse 18 that Paul moves from creation to new creation. Christ has come into this old creation and he's broken the back of the powers to which this creation has been subjected. And one of the most obvious evidences of that is the church. Verse 18, Christ is the head of the body, the church. Suddenly, after the resurrection of Christ, this new people, this new humanity emerged in the world. To the eye of reason, it would have looked like nothing else, nothing other than the rise of another religious movement. But to the eye of faith, the resurrection of Christ takes on cosmic significance. The person and the work of Jesus Christ makes the church the body of Christ. And he is the head. He leads it. He governs it. He sustains it. He is vitally, covenantally, eternally connected to his body. The Damascus Road forever changed Paul's understanding of the church. As Saul traveled to Damascus to kill what he thought were renegade Jews who were breaking covenant, he surprisingly met the risen Christ in all of his glory on that road. And as the risen Christ confronted Saul, Acts 9, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? To persecute, to kill their bodies was to persecute Christ. It was on that day when Saul, Paul, realized Jesus of Nazareth is mysteriously the ruler of the universe. And that in all of that authority, he's not distanced himself from the church. He's bound himself to his body in the most vital and connected way. Paul attaches massive significance to the church. By his death and his resurrection and his ascension, Christ attaches himself to a particular people 
and as our head. Paul is changing the way that we see not just the created world, but the church. I realize we don't look like much to this world, but I know what we look like in the eyes of heaven. I can't say, especially in these days, that I have much confidence about the future of any of our nations in this world. I can say no matter how dark things become, I have total confidence in the future of the church. Christ is our head. We are his body. Do you see what significance this gives to our binding ourselves to each other? How worthy Christ is for his people to bind ourselves together to make his body visible on earth. Christ is not just the head of the church. He is, verse 18, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Here's that word, firstborn, again. And context tells us this time it's something different. Here, the one who is before all things in himself has begun something else. He was the firstborn. He was the first one to rise from the dead. And as the beginning, Christ has set in motion something that cannot be stopped. And this is only discerned by the eye of faith. The resurrection of Christ from the dead means this old creation world is coming to its end and something gloriously better is coming. God the Son leaves heaven to take on humanity and in himself creates a new humanity that he might march us forward to take us to him where our head reigns. What began locally in Christ will spread globally by his power, his global body throughout time and space is raised. And so Christ's resurrection as the only one whom death has not been able to hold. It qualifies him as the preeminent one, the one who surpasses all others. He reigns above the powers, seen and unseen. Now let's think about all of this from the vantage point of heaven. We can't fathom the perspective of the glorious angels who saw the Son of God veiled in his glory. Angels who knew all too well the eternal glory of that ordinary baby. Angels who are in no way confused by the fallenness and the helplessness of the human race that in all of our strength think that we are so able. And they are not confused by the holiness of God. And so it was them who in particular must have just watched in wonder as God's salvation plan was unfolding. And the world could not grasp the uniqueness of that baby's supreme place in the universe. The Lord of creation took on ordinary flesh. And so now the angelic realm is not confused by the centrality of his body, the church on earth. In all the universe... They see the Son's preeminence with clarity. And by faith, we see it. And so what is our high calling in our lives and as a church? It is to witness to the preeminence of Christ. 
It is to live as the new humanity in this world. The new creation has come into this old creation world in Christ and in his people. So we have not just a new destiny in Christ. We have a new way of living by the power of Christ. It really is good news that Christ has been raised from the dead because it means you do not have to live for what this world lives for. You don't have to. Christ has exposed the emptiness of the world and the powers. He's broken the power of the false powers of this world and he's emptied them completely. And he holds the power to break your sin in your life. You may feel powerless. Christ is not. I hope that instead of running away from Christ Jesus, that his resurrection would assure you he has come to deal with the darkest power and powers of the universe. And he's done this, not as if they're a surface wound, but as if they've struck a mortal blow to your soul. Why would you run away from the only one in the universe who has resurrection power? Why would you run back to that which only has the power of death. Power of sin is such that it dulls you. It lulls you. It convinces you that it is more powerful and appealing than a man raised from the dead. What are you running to in your own life that you know enslaves you? Do you know that the resurrection of Christ means that Christ has not just freed you from sin's penalty, but also sin's power? Why would you hide from the risen Christ who has defeated the power of sin? It's not the resurrection that's irrational. Sin is irrational. Friends, good news this morning. Christ is raised. Sin's power is not what it once was. It's been broken. And one day it will be banished forever. In Christ, sin is not your master. You do not have to submit to it. Christ, your head, has broken sin's back. Why is Christ preeminent? What caused him to be uniquely set apart? Verse 19, in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus of Nazareth was a walking temple. It was to this point in the world that God dwelled particularly in a temple. But here is something different. God's fullness dwelled in Christ. Now, if you'd seen him physically, there was nothing about his appearance that would have caused you to take notice. It wasn't what he looked like that was the point. It was who he was, how he lived, so unlike every other human. He was and he is the place where God and man meet. The fullness of God dwelled in him bodily. I want you to think about that. Why do we look to another path or to websites or to social media or entertainment or food to satisfy us? We do that because we think we'll find fullness there. The Colossians were looking to some kind of mediating angels for their fullness. 
But Paul says fullness is found in Christ. In Christ, we have the fullness that our souls long for. Kids, I know it's Christmas. Christ is better than anything. He's better than any present you could get. And adults, Christ is better than anything. He satisfies. Fullness is found in him. And as his body, he means for us to take advantage of his fullness. What do you look to for fullness? I want you to bring something to mind. I I can think about in my own life how many times I've looked to others' approval or how praise has sadly motivated me. Without even thinking about it, I was looking to that. I wanted that for fullness. But realizing that fullness is found in Christ frees us from needing other people to serving other people. Fullness in Christ means you don't have to look to anything else. That you can relate to the world and to other people, not as a slave, but with freedom. If you're a Christian, the only reason you're poor is because you do not know your fullness in Christ. What did Christ do with his unique status? He used his body for reconciliation, for redemption. God was pleased through him to reconcile all things to himself in heaven and on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. So the fact that reconciliation was necessary means that something had been broken. Paul is teaching that Christ came to make the world whole. And his work affects every single part of his universe. Now, when Paul says all things, he's not teaching universalism, that everyone will be saved no matter their posture to Christ. In the very next chapter, Paul makes clear that by by the cross, Christ triumphed over the powers, the authorities. He's disarmed them. Christ reconciliation of all things means he will judge the wicked eternally. He will also order the world in such a way that sin and evil will be banished. There is an already and a not yet to this work of reconciliation. Already the back of the powers of evil have been broken. One day they will bow their knee to the risen Christ and be vanquished. Already we are at peace with God and in Christ, peace with each other. One day we will know a world in which evil doesn't even have the remotest presence, presence, all by the power of the cross. Friends, the manger is not disconnected from the cross. The manger leads us to the cross. The cross is the main event in all of human history. All of history has flowed from the cross. All of history flowed to the cross. Christ accomplished salvation at the cross. In this personal universe, I wonder, on this Christmas Eve, where you personally stand with Jesus Christ, I hope you've seen his glory and his authority and his goodness this morning. I would pray that by Christ's power, he's given you grace to see yourself, to see who you are spiritually before God as a helpless sinner who desperately needs the reconciliation and salvation of Christ. 
We need reconciliation because by our sin, we've made ourselves enemies of God. And it's what is remarkable that in his mission to the world, Christ comes as a baby to live, to fulfill the requirements of God for humanity. So Christ obeyed the Father perfectly, not for himself, but for others. And he didn't stop there. He offered himself up to die a shameful death on a cross. But he was raised. And in his resurrection, he has won salvation. He gives life to all of those who would trust him. By his resurrection, by his ascension, he set the universe on a course toward which graveyards will be made one day a mockery the world over. Christ has triumphed. Christ reigns. And so the angels who announced to the shepherds peace on earth with those whom God has pleased is a real announcement of peace. If you do not know God, if you have not trusted Christ, turn now from your own sin and come to Christ. He will receive you. Come to the one who can reconcile you to God. The goodness of the gospel is this. In Christ, your past can be covered and your future can be better than you could ever fathom. All by faith in Christ. In this coming year, there's a Hindu temple that's going to be completed in Dubai. The national newspaper recently reported on it. The article writes, temple officials said prayers will be offered at the end of January and on through July and August, and they will be key to preparing the shrine before the installation of its apex and the 16 deities that will be housed within the temple. Friends, in this world that believes in many powers, here's an assertion that Christ reigns over all the powers. Christ is the unique head Christ will not be placated or pacified by our prayers. God is pacified by the work of Christ on the cross. He has fulfilled every requirement for our salvation. And in his work on the cross and in his resurrection, he has begun a new people, a new humanity. And where he goes, we will go. He whose death was powerful enough to reconcile all things in the universe is powerful enough to accomplish and complete our redemption. Christmas cannot be understood. It cannot be rejoiced in apart from the cross. What is Christmas if it's not a great mystery revealed that for us and for our salvation, the Lord of creation came into creation and hid himself in weakness submitting himself to the cross. One day this world in which death is so normal will give way to a new world of overwhelming resurrection power. I have never forgotten that day that I was in that tomb. So frustrating to me. I didn't understand anything that I was seeing What that guy that was beside me was so overwhelmed by, I was blind to. This is what it is to be a Christian in this world. This is what it is to perceive that in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased 
to dwell. It is what it is to see the baby with wholly different eyes. It is to see glory unimaginable and to anchor your life there. That hope flows into our lives so that we live differently and we are confident in a wholly different destiny. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. O earth, receive your king.